you know, I was so sick of when I was a ballet dancer, you know, there'd be two men who were not very good and they'd be promoted and promoted because they were tall or, you know. Because they were the only men in the room. Exactly. And then they come out with that confidence. They become the choreographers and all these fabulous women, you know, who've had to fight so hard to get there don't have the confidence, you know. beautiful ballerinas, parents of ballerinas, lovers of ballet and everyone in between. I am Georgia Canning, the host of this podcast and founder of Balanced Ballerinas. I drop new episodes of the pod every second Sunday and have been regularly sharing vlogs or tips on my YouTube channel every other Thursday. So make sure you head over there and hit subscribe. And as always, you can catch me on Instagram at The Balanced Ballerina. I love hearing from listeners of the pod. Speaking of you all, I have a fantastic story for you today. About five years ago, I came across Meryl Tankard's work on YouTube. I was actually trying to find an example of an Australian choreographer's work to show my students when I came across her piece, Two Feet, which explores the mental and physical demands of ballet. Two Feet was a one-woman show that Meryl choreographed and performed solo throughout Australia before sharing it with international audiences to much acclaim. When I started deep diving into Meryl's work, I came across interviews and I fell in love with her candid nature and devotion to a creative and original life. And then a few years later, I was actually visiting Adelaide when I heard that Meryl was reviving Two Feet, three decades after it was originally conceived, with the one and only Russian ballerina Natalia Osipova. And it would be featuring at Adelaide Festival when I so happened to be there for work. And I was beyond excited until I wasn't, because, well, it was sold out. Regardless, I reached out to Meryl anyway, and we had a short conversation over Instagram before moving it to email. And then after I didn't hear from Meryl for a while, I had presumed that she was far too busy to have a conversation with little old me for the podcast. So I'll be honest, I didn't follow up. Fast forward to two weeks ago, when I signed up to attend an inclusivity in the arts workshop being hosted by Supercell Contemporary Festival here on the Gold Coast in Australia. To be honest, I usually don't have time to attend these events, but I really do want to educate myself about how I can be more inclusive in my business and my teaching. And so I made the time, but I also felt really, really compelled to attend this event for some reason, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Anyway, I was seated waiting for the workshop to commence when a woman with dark hair and noticeable stance entered the room. And I didn't recognize Meryl at first, but I couldn't help but notice the signature red lip. Five minutes later, Meryl Tenkard introduced herself to the attendees before taking a quiet seat towards the back. Honestly, I almost jumped out of my seat to officially introduce myself. We had been communicating sporadically over the past five years and I had assumed I was annoying this poor, incredible woman with all my emails and direct messages um, across social media. So I guess I just, I stopped annoying her. But the reality was when we finally had a conversation face to face that Meryl had remembered our brief interaction and she'd lost my contact information when she had trouble with her emails in late 2019. She also said she's pretty hopeless at social media and was so glad that I had the courage to come up and ask her again and introduce myself. So we arranged to meet later that weekend and she was more than happy to have a conversation for this wonderful audience as I told her what this platform is all about. And you see, Meryl is a standout when it comes to talking about sexism in the dance industry, advocating for dancers' mental health and harnessing your creativity, you know, without the expense of suffering artists. In her opinion, life should be about play, should be about laughter and it should be about a genuine love for creativity. Meryl's work challenges the elitist barriers often associated with ballet and contemporary dance and through her work in musicals, television, film, opera and obviously dance companies, she is an absolute pioneer for women wanting to design their own freelance career in this space. 
If you are a creative at heart and passionate about choreographing and producing new works, I couldn't think of a better role model. Can you see why I wanted to have a chat with her for the pod? She is a perfect fit. Born in Darwin in 1955, Meryl began ballet classes at a young age before heading to the Australian Ballet School. Shortly after being accepted into the company, Meryl took a leave of absence to work as a professional principal dancer with the infamous Pina Bausch Company in Germany. But eventually craving to be artistically challenged even more so, Meryl then spent time between Germany and Australia appearing in television series for the likes of ABC Television before finally returning to Australia to continue her love for choreographing as the director of the Meryl Tenkard Company in Canberra before moving on to the director of Australian Dance Theatre in Adelaide. Meryl's work is nothing short of varied and colourful, creating Bolero for the Lyon Opera Ballet. She was commissioned by Tiffany & Co. to produce a piece for New York's Museum of National History. Meryl also was responsible for Nikki Webster's debut and the entire deep sea dreaming piece in the Sydney Olympic Games opening ceremony. She was also in charge of a piece titled Ocean Dance to welcome the Dalai Lama to Australia the choreography for Broadway's Tarzan the Musical, and finally, but look, not even close to covering it all, worked with Sydney Dance Company, the Australian Ballet, Sydney Opera House and Netherlands Dance Theatre. Honestly, what you just heard only scrapes the surface of Meryl Tenkard's credits. I haven't even mentioned achievements like Helpman Award in 2000 or Office of the Order of Australia in 2019. I've just chosen a handful to share with you as otherwise this would be a very long episode. I think today's story is a beautiful example of following your gut and that chance encounters often take time and uh, lots of patience. (laughs) It was obviously wonderful sitting down for a conversation with Meryl Tenkard. However, it was just simply an honour meeting her. I have much respect and I'd like to thank Meryl so much for making the time. Please enjoy this conversation and don't mind the little background noise as we were recording in the art gallery and a small child decided to just run circles around us as we recorded. Enjoy this one. Welcome to the Balance Ballerinas podcast, Meryl. As I was saying to you, it's a bit of a dream of mine to interview because I've heard um, you speak in so many other interviews and your honesty is really um, refreshing and and I really enjoy it. So I'm so glad that you have made the time to sit down. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're actually at Supercell, the Contemporary Festival. What's been your role whilst you're here? I... I'm a mentor here. There's about um, 17 different artists that Mm. I'm talking to. So some are right at the beginning of their development um, projects. Some are a little way through um, to be really, you know, um, to actually be really useful. It would be good to come back and see the next stage, you know. But it has been interesting hearing all the ideas and very diverse group of people so nice like diving straight in what what advice do you give up-and-coming choreographers um every project's different I think and I just throw some ideas you know they might you know when they say something I get inspired by something else and I'll throw that at them or you know uh, I noticed a lot of them are writing things down on paper and, you know, sometimes that can be just too overwhelming. So I'm trying to encourage them to get on the floor and actually physicalise it because everybody now has these amazing concepts and it looks really great on paper, but, you know, getting out there and doing it on their bodies is something different. Yeah, so. so I guess getting them to be a little bit more instinctual. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted to just dive straight into sort of you as a little one. There's a great <laughs> story. There's a great story that I'd love you to share with the listeners. Right. Um, your dad, when you were younger, oh, yes. he built yep. you yeah. a dance studio. Yeah. So yeah. could you share that? Yeah, we were... Um, my father was in the Air Force, so we travelled a lot. We'd just come back from Penang, and we he was posted in near Newcastle. 
and we were living in Raymond Terrace and it's just a very, um, not a very creative atmosphere there. So I think, you know, probably going to ballet was my only creative outlet. And he loved building things. He was a mechanical engineer and he decided he knocked down the garage and built me a studio. And um, it was amazing. He got this beautiful wood, tallow wood, I remember, and I had to get the best wood. And he did the whole floor and he was just starting to do the um, walls and he died suddenly of a heart attack. And How old was he? He was only 53. Wow. And he's incredibly fit, you know, like he was banging the concrete up himself and um, off the garage wall, the floor. And um, yeah, so that was a massive shock for my mother. I was the third daughter, so I was the only one at home then. So there was just suddenly mum and I and stuck out there where, you know, there really wasn't very much to do. But um, his mates from the Air Force came and finished it for him. And I then, I was about 16 when he died. And um, then I had to make a decision, you know, in those days you had to go to ballet or you had to go to school. So, and I, was quite good at school and I went to Catholic school and the nuns were like furious that I might give up so I said okay I'm going to in one year I'm going to see if I can do my intermediate advanced and solid seal RAD exams. Can't believe you did all three. I cannot believe it. Like that's I a huge cannot, undertaking. I cannot believe I did it and I just think that that you know I must have got all his strength or something mm. but I was also in Newcastle so I I discovered holidays at a summer school that my mother had sent me so I would get the train at quarter to six in the morning go to Sydney it was three and a half hours plus the bus trip and I would dance all day with the holidays and I'd either come home or I'd stayed one night in um, Sydney, you know. Mm. So I did that. So I was travelling from Newcastle to Sydney to do full-time classes and then with the studio I would do a little... I had a school. so on Out of your home studio? Yeah. So on the Wednesday I didn't go into Sydney and I had jazz ballet classes, I had little kids classes, I had adult classes. I was like 17 and I just think, how did I do that? And then on Saturday I did it as well. So I did do all those things and I said, okay, if I don't pass all those exams, I still got my high school certificate, I'll go back and I'll do it in one year. So I had that goal and um, I passed. So then I thought, oh my God, what do I do now? <laughs> and then I auditioned for the Australian Ballet School and got in. So mum and I moved to Melbourne then. But she had come from Melbourne, so it was a nice, you know, excuse to go back. But it did feel going to the Australian Ballet School was a bit like, you know, studying again because you do all that work to get the solo seal and then you go into a class with such a range of different dancers, you know. So in some ways, you know, it was um, slightly disappointing, you know, but we did have part of class and things like that, you know. Yeah. I was just wondering, what was the Australian Ballet School like back then? I I was at the Australian Ballet School when I was 15 and 16. Uh-huh. And so I was curious, what, yeah. what was it like back yeah. then? Well, we were told there was going to be drama class and there's going to be art history and all of that and those classes nobody ever took them seriously and I loved them you know I just loved hearing all the art history and I loved acting and but you know none of the other students really got into it so the teachers were a bit you know it was hard to be you know enthusiastic when most of the class is falling asleep or something so but anyway, so the two years, and then at the end of that, luckily I got into the company, yeah. yeah. But then I finally got into the company, and then I thought, oh, there's something missing, you know. It's just, um, I've worked so hard to be here, and um, it just wasn't that challenging, or 
you know. It seems like it wasn't creative enough for you. No, no. no. So I used to knit jumpers. I, I used to, I started to knit and I would knit these vests with little animals and things that I'd make cakes and I mum and I would make these big cakes I made Sir Robert Helpman a giant birthday cake in the shape of him in his red tracksuit with his gold jewellery. That's so funny. And I don't know how I did it because we did, you know, two shows Wednesday, two shows Saturday. We were worked to like the only day off we had was must have been the Monday or Sunday, I guess Sunday. But um I was going to say, when did you have the time to make such I a creative know. cake? I don't know. <laughs> My mother was amazing. You know, she would actually bake it and then I'd cut it out and I'd draw, you know, paint it all. And then it the, um, became really popular. So the yeah. ballet company would order it. Like um, Everyone started requesting personal yes. cakes. <laughs> so someone, um, John Lanchbury, for his birthday, they wanted me to do the two pigeons. So I did this and I had absolutely no training. I just made it up. I, I made the top of the chair and I put two white pigeons and iced it all and but I never photographed this stuff you know not like today it would have been all over your Instagram I know I know (laughs) and I remember one we had this English teacher from she was quite famous she called me Cakey and um what's her name very famous teacher and she always wore a t-shirt that you could see her nipples you know so I devised <laughs> this I put a, a snowball with a jelly bean on the top and then ice it and it just looked like her breast oh my gosh that's so funny but, um, yeah and so Robert Helpman said to me darling if you if you ever want to leave the ballet I'll just set you up in a cake shop <laughs> so funny you could have but, had a completely different career yeah yeah <laughs> But we had, you know, we were very creative. Like, we'd have parties and we would dress up and we'd have these theme parties and we'd make our costumes. And it was quite a, you know, it's a really nice group of creative people at that time in the ballet. Characters, you know. I I think a lot of the time people don't quite realise that when you're in an institution like the Australian Ballet School or like a Mm, company in the mm, Court of Ballet, mm. there isn't a whole lot of room for creativity. You're very much showing up and doing what's asked of you. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I went back, you know, years later and one of the dresses said to me, oh, they're all boring now. You know, they're not like you lot. You know, they go home and they just watch videos. Watch Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Where was it that you experienced a little bit more of a traumatic sort of uh, ballet childhood? Was that in Newcastle? Oh, in Newcastle, yeah, yeah, yeah. And why why was it a little bit traumatic? They were really strict teachers. Like, I had come from Penang where um, I had a very strict Chinese teacher who used to fine us if a piece of hair came out or if our ribbon came out we'd get fined 20 cents so I was used to strict teachers but not abusive you know in any way and then um so mum you know tried to find me the best teacher and one day I saw this little girl having her head pushed into a bucket of water. I could see her from the dressing room. And she was, you know, about eight, and she was doing an aesthetic, and the teacher was pushing her head in and pulling it out and saying, smile. And, you know, that just did it. I said, I don't think I want to go there anymore, you know. It's water torture. Yeah, amazing. Like as a ballet teacher now today, I I can't even imagine. I'd be put in jail if I did Mm, that. It mm, wouldn't even cross my mm, mind to do that, mm, but mm, it's just mm. unfathomable. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And then the next one I went to, so I thought, oh, I'll go to the other one who's supposed to be really fabulous. And she would tie our foot up when we did pirouettes and uh, so we couldn't drop our leg and stick a pair of scissors in our thigh as we turned you know and I remember when she did it to me the only thing I was worried about was my mother had just bought me these new tights and there was a ladder in it and she made a ladder and I was so upset that you know mama just bought these really expensive big tights and but that was that was really bizarre because um I think she had given up her career. Mm. 
and uh, well, she'd gone to London to the Royal Ballet School. And I think she met somebody, got pregnant, gave it up, and there was that resentment. Bitter. Know? Yeah, yeah. Took yeah. it out on her students. Yeah, yeah. And amazing that people stayed there, you know. Mm-hmm. How do you think that shaped you? I wanted to ask whether that. You know, do you think discipline can certainly be harnessed, you know, in a more respectful way? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it just makes you think that dance is associated with pain mm. and it doesn't have to be. And and that's why I always, when I'm, you know, with my dance, I always think, you know, humour is really important to be able to laugh and have fun, but still work hard, you know. So you don't have to be abusive, you know. You can get much more out of people by, you know, um, being a lot more subtle, you know, and encouraging and enthusiastic, you know, and and actually empowering them. Definitely. I think that's one of the reasons why I jumped at the chance to meet with you because I I just love everything that you say about, you know, treating your dancers with respect mm, and it being mm. a mutual process. And just tapping into that creativity like I felt when I I had so much to give creatively and it was never asked of me so when I had my company I look around and I'm quite proud because you know there's Gavin, Grayson, Prue, Michelle I realized it was like 80-90% of ADT my dancers are all choreographers you know so you know that's nice because often people go through life and they've never have anybody to pull it out you know Mm. and challenge them but in a really good creative way you know just push people and I found like when I had ADT I wanted every piece to have a different um you know a challenge for me too so you know we did flying we, we learned bulgarian singing we even had tap dancing and much so and then you would discover that oh this girl's got the most amazing voice she never knew she had or or this one's got an amazing sense of humor that she didn't know she had this you know talent so it's just really um fun and you know, and it should be wonderful, fun. Wonderful to mm. see them grow as artists, you know. Yeah. And then ultimately, yeah. I guess, you know, when that process is treated in that way, mm. I'd argue that you have better works and you have exactly, better art. Exactly, exactly. And you have that commitment, you mm. know, because they love doing what they're doing. Yeah. And they're strong, you know, they're powerful. They feel powerful on stage. Yeah. yeah. And probably more consistent Confident. in their performance yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Birds Behind Bars was your first foray into choreography. (laughs) Um, I was wondering whether you were encouraged or discouraged as a female to dive into choreography. Do you know, we had Anne Williams came from the Stuttgart Ballet and she had worked with um, Cranko, John Cranko, Mm -hmm. who, and we had done some of his ballets. We'd done um, Manon, um, Romeo and Juliet, and... They were always very, you know, it was something different. They were emotional and he used the ballet in a, the ballet steps in a different way from, you know, all this English stuff that we'd been doing. And um, so Anne came into the company and she was so enthusiastic and she only lasted one year. They got rid of her. And, um, but I loved her. I just absolutely loved her. And she just said one day to me in class, you should be a choreographer. And I was, you know, in the court of ballet, a corvée, and, um, you know, I thought, well, you know. So there was a little um, program dedicated to Dame Peggy von Prague, and Anne encouraged me to do something. So I was also in another one of those works, and I was still doing the full ballet, and we didn't get very much time. But I made that piece and I um, I found this music from Soweto, the, the Dark City Sisters. I remember a friend was playing this and I said, I'm going to use that. And it was these women from Soweto singing Happy Christmas or something. Yeah. And, uh, and I used sound effects from the kitchen and it was a sort of a bit effeminate statement, I guess. But um, they were chacharing and 
tangoing on point, you know, and it just won. I got the $1,000 I've won from the Ballet Society as a prize. And $1,000 is a lot of money. That was then. a lot yeah. of money. <laughs> yeah. And um, I said, oh, I'm going to go to Europe. I'm going to, I'm just going to. You know, go to Europe. And the fact you could go to Europe with a thousand dollars. No, it's amazing. Know. Yeah. So I remember it was the only time I could go was summer. You know, so they extended. Dame Peggy then took over because they got rid of Van Williams. Why did they get rid of Van Williams? I just think she was too strong and too, you know, a woman and came in with all these new ideas. How she was, dare a woman come in with new ideas? Well, she <laughs> wanted to encourage Australian choreographers mm. and she put Don Asker in the opera house and they just killed her, you know, like anything new, like maybe they didn't get the audience numbers straight away, so that was used against her and that was really tragic, you know? So, you know, I was feeling at the end of that year, oh, Anne's gone, and anyway, I'm going to go overseas for this um, extended holiday, and I heard about Jacques Lecoq, and I was going to go and do some classes in mime in Paris. So I get to, and I was going to look through Italy, and I just wanted to see what other companies were doing. And um, it was freezing, you know, it was going to snow, and my mother had we didn't, we had no coats in those days like people didn't buy real not real yeah winter coats you know and my mother had this south american skunk um it was like a cocktail you know 40s amazing mm. jacket she gave me and i wore that can you imagine so cute so i'm in this you know great art very deco, chic very chic south american skunk jacket but um I'm in Italy and I bump into Lee Warren and he says, oh, you've got to go and see Pina Bausch. And I said, oh, I've sort of forgot the name. Oh, you've got to go and see her. You've got to see her. She's in Wuppertal. You would love it. And I didn't take that much notice of him. I went off to Jacques Lecoq, did some classes. And then my friend at uh, NDT, Shane Carroll, said, you've got to see Pina Bausch. And I said, oh... Okay, that's the second time I better go and see her, you know. So Shane said, Look, I found out there's a performance on this night, you can go. So I had three more days. Yeah. I went there. There was another Australian girl in the company, which just blew my mind. It was polystyrene mountains, girls in 50s dresses, speaking English, German, French dropping love letters from the top of the mountain, men with um, wings, you know, and it was three and a half hours long. And I just thought, oh, this, this is heaven, you know, this is some sort of miracle that someone made me be at this time here, you know. And then Jo, Jo and Andy God, she said, um, oh, why don't you audition for the company? And I said, well, I can't, I've got... 12 months, you know, it starts in January, I've got another 12 months, but at the same time I'm going, God, I would love to get out of the ballet. Because you found what you're looking for. Mm. Mm. So it really was like a miracle, and um, Jo said, look, look, she needs someone now, why don't you come and join us in rehearsal? So I rocked up in my South American skunk coat with my red lipstick, and, and I saw Pina, you know, look at me. This sort of smile, but she didn't speak any English at that time. And they were doing Macbeth with um, German actors, so there was like quite old, very intellectual looking German actors, little spectacles. I thought, oh my god! And then I just joined in and improvised with them, I was petrified. And I remember doing this. Um, improvising of being surprised and Pina just telling me schneller schneller go faster go faster and I'd absolutely remembered it you know in great detail and I did it as fast as I could but then at 8 30 she still said well now you have to do an audition right 8 30 at night yeah this was after working all day 
And I felt terribly out of condition because, you know, when you're a ballet dancer and you haven't done your ballet class. Class every day, yeah. yeah. So I had to do a ballet class. I had to do some of her movements from Sacra. And then she said, and it's like 11 o'clock now, she's on the floor reading the newspaper. And there was one other guy who came from Netherlands Dance Theatre. He was with me. I don't know how he turned up, but we were both auditioning. And But you know when you don't actually ever think you're going to get the job and you don't need the job actually, but... So you sort of just go for it and you're yeah, less inhibited, so, yeah. Yeah. And then she said, oh, can you remember any of the performance? And I remembered all these things and I just did them all, you know. And then at 11.30 she said, um, okay, I'll take you. And I just died, like... I said, oh, but I can't come. I could come in 12 months at a time. She just looked at me and said, oh, you know, why don't you go back and see what you can do? So I go back, I have all these photographs of Joanne and I tell them all that, you know, I want leave of absence. I said, could I have 12 months leave of absence? Because I want to be a choreographer. Very clever. <laughs> and I didn't really want to be a choreographer. And... Um, I so Dame Peggy, who was very into developing Australian choreographers, she was wonderful. And it took three months, though, for them to finally give me um, the leave of absence. But I stay. I never yeah, went never back. Went back. <laughs> and they never talked about it, so it was fine. But they all got angry. There was a there was a sort of um, some of the teachers, you know, were angry with me for leaving and uh, why was I abandoning and why was I giving up and yeah it was really interesting reaction. It's funny how in the dance industry especially teachers seem to sort of claim and own you yeah Yeah. and it's a betrayal if you leave them instead of just like letting them fly. Some of my students I can't get rid of I'm like please go spread your wings. (laughs) Yeah and you want them to learn Mm. different things and um yeah yeah it's so interesting that was a really weird experience that mm-hmm. i didn't expect that you know from them but they did see it wasn't on point it wasn't ballet and in those days if it wasn't ballet it was below you know it yes. wasn't really dancing you know? yes isn't that still a little little bit like absolutely. that absolutely yeah <laughs> and then you know i got there and i did the rite of spring and i i remember my spine and my neck just aching and i said this is dancing my whole body is now dancing you know yeah. it's um I'm using everything. Your time working with with Pina Bausch really seemed like a very pivotal time in your life that really shaped your creativity, I guess. I mean, it's so much so it inspired you that you wanted to, you know, go into your Mm. own sort of Mm. work Mm. as opposed to doing hers. Yeah. You described her in an interview as being quiet, but demanding. Mm, mm, Can you mm. elaborate on that? Because I find that interesting because usually someone demanding is very loud and obnoxious. No, it was really fascinating. Like she put me into Café Müller, which, um, you know, when you don't know and you don't understand the hierarchy and you don't realise that being in a piece that Pina Bausch is dancing in and only five other people, you know, that's a big deal. So... I had just joined and Pina put me in that piece and there were all those other dancers who were not in that piece, you know, so that was um, pretty amazing. But we were just working, like sometimes we were there till nearly one in the morning and, you know, I come from the ballet where you finish at six and, you know, there's a union and and we were just sitting around and, and it did feel very undisciplined and weird and you know how can this go on why doesn't anyone say anything and um, you know we would always work overtime no one ever would say anything no one ever would even dare look at the watch you know and there's Pina just quietly she just had that um, you know aura and ability to inspire everyone around her give give her you know she talked she talked she talked you know yeah, and we all gave, mm. you know. 
we just gave her everything. Incredible, isn't it, really? Yeah, it is. I, I was going to ask you, do you, how do you inspire them to give you, you know, their everything? Yeah, I guess you, you just, and peanut? um, <laughs> yeah, you, you open up these little doors in them that, you know, I think they want to give and they want to express themselves you know um i don't think i could push i can't push people like pina did physically like she would just make us do things over and over and over again and i just can't do that you know when i see them emotionally weak or physically weak, i have to stop and have a rest you know like i can't go to that extreme yeah. yeah, and I don't know if she would be able to now either. You know. Yes. Yeah. Might yeah. might be a good time to ask. I wanted to ask you. I've been thinking a lot about lately the difference between suffering and sacrifice, and yeah. I do believe if you want to be really great at something, yeah. you do have to have sacrifice. But you know, do you need to suffer for greatness? It's there's a point, isn't there? You know, where you just. Um, when it's too much, you know. I know after six years, like, I was in every piece and I gave every, you know, I never marked anything. So if you're mm. in a piece for three and a half hours every night and it's emotionally draining, it's physically draining, it's, um, you know, I knew after the five years I can't do this forever you know I'm gonna go nuts or um your body will give out (laughs) yeah or I want to use all that energy for myself and and be you know it felt like suffering it felt too much you know Mm -hmm. and I don't feel I was getting enough back from it you know yeah do you think dancers today are expected to still suffer or do you think it's getting a bit better um, That's a tough question, I yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm not really in that mm. ballet world at all. Um, I think everyone's so much more confident, you know, because they can go on the internet and they can learn so much on their own, you know, so they're not really out there looking for the master, you know, like in our day it was like, wow, you work with Pina Bausch. It's no longer that, because um, mm. everybody knows everything. They just go on the internet and they know everything. So it's a little bit yeah. gone the other way, a bit extreme, you know. Interesting, yeah. yeah. No, I haven't yeah. thought of it like that. That's yeah, so true. It's a lot of confidence in themselves, yeah. You know, I still think you can learn a lot from people or, you know, experienced people there's still a lot to learn you know definitely your career's been so adventurous and very Mm. unconventional (laughs) yes um well I wanted to ask what what medium is your favorite you know you've been in stage operas musicals film television um I'm just at the moment I'm trying to write a feature film and I have a producer interested so I'm really keen on that because I you know, as well as dance not being filmed that well, like I've choreographed a film and then I see how they film and they just want to edit stuff and you've done this beautiful thing that if it was shot simply, you know, you would capture it. So, you know, that's one thing. But also emotion and often in the theatre things can get lost, you know, mm. small detail. So I'm interested in film too take the audience as I, you know, where I want it to go and yeah. be in control of that a bit more. But, you know, there's still something about seeing someone in front of you just doing it, you know. There, there is, isn't there? And I've worked with that, um, very fortunate to have Natalia Osipova doing Two Feet, which was just like... That was my next question. I cannot believe that she said yes and she do it. And I was so nervous about, my God, you know, the world's greatest ballerina in his studio, what do you do? And she just gave, gave, gave every single day. 
she never rolled her eyes, she never pulled her face, she just, she is extraordinary. And sometimes my assistant who had worked with Peanut, too, a Japanese uh, dancer, she, we would be almost in tears, you know, and, you know, the ballets think, oh, we reject ballet, but then you've seen the Tahalia doing it, and you think, oh, that's what ballet is, you know, but she loves it, you know, mm. she's got that absolute love, she has to dance, she just has to dance. You know, I tried to get tickets to it in Adelaide and it was sold out. And um, then, you know, it it went nowhere. I mean, we were supposed to go to Perth and Sydney and they both pulled out. Yeah, I was going to say, why why was it only in Adelaide? So it was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. 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 Because it was sold out in Adelaide. I think um, some producers came Australian and... Maybe there weren't enough pirouettes, although, you know, they wanted to see Natalia doing, you know, Swan Some Lake or something. or something, yeah. But for <laughs> us, for real dancers, yeah. to see her vulnerability was so much more interesting, you know. What was it like recreating? Because Two Feet was a piece you choreographed mm. for yourself and mm. part of your story. What was it like recreating that on someone else? Well, I changed a few things, like when I did the Steadford for instance where you know maybe the mothers wouldn't show my mother how to do their hair or something you know and there was that competitive I just asked Natalia um Natasha we call her um uh who were critics or if there were dancers who were you know competitive what did they say about her and she just turned out oh it's incredible so I had her doing like an excerpt of Don Q and then this critic saying, oh, she thinks she's Bambi, you know. And then she was doing Esmeralda and she was like so sexy. And, and then she would take on uh, one of her dance colleagues saying, um, oh, she thinks she's a pro- she looks like a prostitute, you know. So it was so great. And then one day she dyed her hair red and she had mascara and I made her put this little red wig on and she put the black stuff on it and... Um, her teacher said, this is a, a monastery, not a discotheque, you know. And she said it in this Russian accent and so gorgeous. I, I don't think there's many ballerinas who wouldn't have some horror stories with them. But what ballerinas would do that? Yeah. I mean, she just went from one character to the other um, amazingly and such a sense of humor like she's got a sense of humor she seems like she does yeah yeah she really does she really does and um yeah and her te- but i found the interesting because her teachers were strict but they were not abusive they didn't you know they were tough but yeah they weren't as nasty as the ones I had, you know. Oh, it would be hard to beat the stories mm, that you've got, I tell mm, you that much. Mm. I've got some shockers, but none of them compare to that. <laughs> mm, the bucket was pretty amazing, wasn't it? That's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you why you picked all women when you auditioned oh, dancers for your company. Um, they were just simply stronger. And I kept saying, why am I trying to have, you know, two men and three women and the men weren't very good at auditions, so let's just have women. And then it was great because coming from Pina, you know, I was like, I don't want to be like Pina about I can't do anything like Pina about It's got to be, you know, got to be you. And it's very hard when you've had somebody mm. so powerful. So um, having women, Pina's work was very, you know, about gender, masculinity, femininity, and the relationships and... This was great because they were all women. So, you know, it just made me go somewhere else and work mm. with another energy. Yeah. Well, it makes sense if if none of the boys were up to it. No, absolutely. Why, why bother absolutely. employing them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I thought. And, you know, I was so sick of when I was a ballet dancer, you know, there'd be two men who were not very good and they'd be promoted and promoted just because they were tall or, you know. 
Because they were the only men in the room. Exactly. And then they come out with that confidence. They become the choreographers and all these fabulous women, you know, who've had to fight so hard to get there don't have the confidence, you know. It's very, very true. Very true. And no one still don't talk about that enough in ballet because they see a lot of women on stage, they think, you know but they don't have the power. Yes, a few people have said to me, you know, oh, it must be really great working in an industry where, you know, it's very female dominated and orientated. And it's like, well, not really. Not Not if you look at the artistic stuff. No, not at all. No, no, no. And still the same. Yeah. Do you feel like you've had to work 10 times harder than perhaps male choreographers? I, you know, I never thought that, but I just look back now and I go, Oh, yeah, right, you know, that's definitely the case. It's just harder, I don't know. You must be a tough cookie, I think so, in the best way possible. I don't know, (laughs) it's very um, very hard to remain strong, you know. Australia's very sexist, I think, you know, Mm. still. Because nobody is commenting on it, you know. No, no one is actually aware of it, which is even worse in the dance world. I think no one's talking about that, you know. Yeah. In other fields, they are, but yeah, I guess there's lots of talk about racism, but probably yeah, not that much about sexism. No, no. I wanted to ask you about your creative process. I feel like no, I mean, all the interviews I've heard, Mm. I haven't really had anybody ask you specifically about your creative process. I want to know, like, do you walk into the studio with your choreography sort of already planned out or mapped out and see how you go? Do you have journals? What do you... I think it's different. I mean, every time it's different. But I definitely try to get to know the dancers or see what they offer me, you know. because I think that we're all part of it and they're human and they're not just objects. And, you know, I cannot go in and just look at myself in the mirror and do a movement. I just and can't. And say, copy me. I can't do it. And, be, well, you know, I did a bit and then I look at it and I think, oh, why do I want them to look like me? I don't want them to look like me, you know? So um, I, when I left Pina, I was doing a show at NIDA for drama students and um, acting students and I just realised that they were very, you know, unco and um, awkward (laughs) and and then I realised if I asked them questions I could say, oh, okay, I want you to jump over these hedges and someone's chasing you and you have to get out of there really quickly they would just do these amazing leaps and they would jump so high. And I thought, if I had told that actor, no, I want you to jump, I would have said, oh, no, no, I can't, I'm not a dancer. You know, so I realised if I would give them some emotional, you know, motivation. And, and that's, you know, it was Pina too, like, um, why, why are you moving? You know, not how are you moving? So... But I sort of started to then make the vocabulary, you know, from those things they gave me. But, you know, I'd grab one bit of it and another bit here and another bit, and then I'd add something, you know. So I tried, for each piece, I tried to have a new vocabulary, you know. And that helped me keep going because I didn't want to have a vocabulary that I had to teach to people because... I don't know, it felt very ego, I don't know. You a bit know? egotistical? Yeah, I feel like that. Perhaps you know? sort of a man wouldn't think egotistical. <laughs> well, you know, I remember going to Netherlands Dance Theatre and going to a party and all the men looked like Yuri Killian. And I thought, that must be really strange, you know? I think everybody copy your look. you. Why would you want that? So when I had ADT, I had this short little, you know, really strong uh, New Zealand dancer. I had a tall Finnish blonde dancer. And, yeah, I didn't really want anyone to look like me, you know? That's so funny. strange. Well, it makes sense, I mean... Artists and dancers need to look like themselves, don't they? Yeah, to then yeah, feel comfortable in themselves. You actually want to encourage them to find their own voice. Yeah, yeah. 
it's um it's wonderful that you do that with your dancers because mm. I, I do think it's a bit few and far between so and and yeah. it just instilling that confidence will give you a yeah. better performance in yeah. my opinion yeah, yeah. my humble I think opinion so. I think so. <laughs> you place such an importance on learning you've said mm. that mm. that you know you're a lifelong learner mm. What was it like going back to university as a mature age student? I, I never went back to university. I, I did the film school. I did a year at the AFTERS. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and that was like a diploma in film directing. And, you know, all these kids were like... That was 12 years ago. Oh, and okay. The, I thought the film school was at a university. No, oh, no. Well, I think it is part of yeah. the university now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it is like the Australian radio and TV school, you know. And um, I thought all these young, you know, young directors were just going to be so inspiring. And I just found just quite set in their ways or, you know, they didn't know much about European film or they weren't as curious as I'd expected them to be for young people you know so that was quite interesting yeah sort of like you said before how maybe our generation's a bit like we know it all yeah I think because it's so easy to find stuff you know you've found it on the internet it doesn't mean that you've actually experienced it done the work lived it and yeah it's just so easy you're so busy and creative I usually ask my guests at the end of each podcast what they find brings them balance. Does right. Meryl Tankard switch off? Do you do you cook besides elaborate cakes for people's birthdays <laughs> of their faces? <laughs> <laughs> what 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 do you have in your life that that's um, that you do during your free time, your downtime? Um, I paint walls in our apartment I love, I love painting <laughs> colours I realise that I'm sick of living in white so I I do actually really like you know painting walls but um, and painting and drawing and I thought when COVID happened and the whole year went you know down the drain I yeah. thought that's what I'm going to do and we bought a place in the country and I thought, I'm just going to paint, I'm going to embroider. I started doing this really weird embroidery, quite complex, you know, like people and animals and stuff. But um, then this year, I've had so much work, so I haven't been able to do it. But I do love doing things with my hands, like some sort of handicraft or something. I think it's quite therapeutic, Mm. you know. You have to be very patient to do those things. Yeah, yeah, Mm. and you do have to focus, and I prefer to do that like I know people say meditation but I think it is a form of meditation it's a form of I mean I even sometimes describe because I've got lots of ballet clients and and I talk about ballet and just just class not Mm. you know Mm. doing works or Mm. anything but Mm. just classes moving meditation yes yeah Yeah. I think it's the same whether you're embroidering or I know and going to that bar every morning was just like meditation really yeah Mm. Especially yeah. when you get to that point where you don't have to think about it. You just, yeah. you just move. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Meryl. <laughs> this you. has been a pleasure. Thank you <laughs> thank so you. much. And I know you're so tired after yeah, all the work you've been doing today. So thank you so much. <laughs> it means okay. the world to me to sit down with you. Thank you. Thanks.